It's Dr. Seuss Podcast at drseusspodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, you get your email alerts. Give us five-star review. You can also find us at drstewspodcast.com or at birthinginstincts.com. Just click on the banner. You can also find us on Facebook and at Twitter at, at Dr. Fishbein. Uh, uh, I have uh, uh, a tweeting account. I don't even know. I'm not very technically uh, savvy, so I have a, a designated tweeter. So if she's listening, Renee, thank you for being my designated tweeter. And it's me, Dr. Stu. I am back from my eight-month hiatus. Uh, Today is podcast number 92. And I am uh, joined today by Dr. Jennifer Angel. Jennifer is a chiropractor, a doula, and a midwifery student. And I'm honored to have the lovely Dr. Angel with me. Ooh. Uh Uh-oh. Ooh. Did I just make a boo-boo? I think you did. Yes, I, I might have. I might have made a sexist uh, remark. Yeah, I'm. I'm lovely. I mean, I, maybe I should have said handsome. I could be offended. You could be handsome. Could you be? Are you, are you breastfeeding? Um, I guess I am. You could I be. A, can males breastfeed? I. Uh, no, it's so appropriate now to. <laughs> we're so we we we're so nervous now about actually saying the wrong adjectives or wrong descriptions. Uh, but you are a little lovely, Doctor Jennifer Angel, and it brings me to like we we were talking before the show about. Uh, you know, the lately, latest thing in California is they, they're taking um, male and female off of certain forms that you fill out now. And so I was speculating what they're going to do with birth certificates. And, and you know, we live in this bizarre world where, you know, when babies are born, they either are a boy or a girl. They don't know whether they're something else yet. They either have male parts or female parts. Sometimes they actually have both. But again, that's extremely rare. And they will have to assign a gender at that point. But what are we going to do in the future? Are we going to have birth certificates that don't say what the sex of the baby is? Gosh, it's, <laughs> it's possible to come I can to see that, you, right? I can see you haven't, your brain doesn't work like my brain. It, hasn't, it doesn't think about these things like that. Because I just, I, I just think it's another, another piece of insanity. I mean, when uh, we were talking earlier too, what if a, you know, if a male feels like a female... I mean, what goofy high school kid isn't going to want to go into the girls' locker room and say that he's a female today? And then the question I would have is if a female wants to go into the men's locker room and maybe she happens to be on her period, do we have to put tampon dispensers now in the men's locker room? Or should we just get rid of all orientation on the doors of bathrooms and just let everybody go everywhere and chaotic? And you know, women should go in urinals and men can go mm-hmm. in the stalls and... Uh, I mean, why should that be any different than what's going on in the labor and delivery units and the and the medical schools across the country and and our thing? It's all a bit of insanity, you know. I'm I have my libertarian leaning views and and uh, maybe conservative when it comes to foreign policy, but but uh, you know I'm all for I'm all for supporting these things. But at some point, you know, standards are important, and when you start to eliminate all standards, you basically eliminate um, social constructs which. You know, maybe anarchists feel is a good thing, but ultimately society needs rules. True. I mean, there needs to be some order. And like you said, you remove all of that and that would just create chaos. Yeah, I mean, if you, you know? wanted to dress Kalista up in blue, mm-hmm. you could do that. I sure could. But what, what's she wearing today? She's in pink. She's all pink. Look at that. Yes, she's, <laughs> she's absolutely adorable and all pink. Um, so anyway, everybody knows that uh, who've listened to this podcast before that... Uh, podcast number 90 was actually from last end of last September. And so there's been an eight-month space of time 
where the podcast sort of went on hiatus. And part of that was because both Brian and I got really busy doing other things. Um, and well, actually, that's the only reason it really happened is because we got busy doing other things. Brian's professional stuff took off. And me being a sole home OB, or OB practitioner, it was very hard to schedule something, uh, take up the producer's time, and then end up having to cancel uh, last minute. So it made it very hard. And recently, I was supposed to go to a conference in Nebraska this past month, um, and I ended up having to cancel on that. I did a video uh, webinar for them uh, so that they could show it uh, at a later date because people you know, came to the conference expecting me to be there. But because I had twins and breaches and things do, and of course in California, as we know, um, uh, I'm pretty much alone in that. Uh, midwives by law cannot do twins or breaches in our state. And so when I have those people do, if I go away and they happen to go into labor, they're basically screwed and they end up having to uh, ha use a backup plan, which is always in a hospital setting. So if anybody's listening, by the way, and knows any physician out there who's an obstetrician, who's well-trained or even wants to be trained, who is really sort of disgruntled and fed up with their, the lifestyle of working in a hospital where they're doing things that they don't agree with or they're the rigid regulations and, and silly th uh, things that they make them do and wants a lot more freedom. And I really enjoy my life. I enjoy my time. I enjoy birthing. Uh, the only thing that's difficult about my thing is that I'm on call all the time. You know, you know what that's like. I mean, unfortunately, my kids are all grown, but Jennifer, you have two little kids. Right. And if you, when you become a midwife, I don't know if you're planning to have a solo practice, but what are you thinking about when that happens? Because Kalista is only going to be three or four years old when you finish your midwifery school. What will you do? You know, that's a good question. I, I haven't decided if I will do like a, um, like a partnership type of practice. But um, as you were just talking about the dependence that these women have on you for the types of births um, that only you can attend, the breaches and the twins. And you feel, I want to know, like, how do you feel when you have gone back to Minnesota for your family, you know, to see your dad and, and all of that, or, or, you know, you're, you do take vacation from time to time. And when these women, their only birth option is then to go to a hospital or, or you know that it was because you physically couldn't be here to attend their birth, that they had a cesarean birth. I mean, it, it changed. I mean, how can you hold that, that feeling inside you that, that, you know, it, and it's such a bummer. Like, how do you handle that? Well, you know, I still have a little bit left of me of the old obstetrician training school stuff where we were, we often would dissociate, but that was never my nature. My nature was always to be sort of a solo practitioner. It's why I chose being in private practice as a solo practitioner in a hospital setting before I went off and started to do home birthing setting because I wanted, the reason I chose obstetrics in the first place, well, many of the, re I mean, there are many reasons, but one of the major ones was that I liked what was called longitudinal care. I like to take care of people over a period of time and to take care of somebody through their pregnancy and then not be there for the culmination of that or to be delivering women that you've never met before and never see them again. That I, I didn't find that very satisfying. So for me as a person, when I go away and I miss a birth, it's devastating. I, I, I can't imagine it's as devastating as it is to the couple who are hoping to have the option of trying to do this at home. You know, there are many well-trained midwives who are well-trained to do breaches and, and, and twins. Uh, 
as as you know, they the the organized medicine people when they gave up supervision of midwives, they extracted their pound of flesh by by sticking this in the bill under the guise of safety. Safety is always used as a canard to get people to do what they want them to do, and it really has nothing to do with safety. Um, you know, if it was about safety, then the hospital model would have to go under major revisions itself. But that's not the that's not the case. You know, I I looked at uh, opportunity in Oregon recently, and uh, you know, I had I was invited there. There's a birth center there that was very open. It's a very beautiful place. Uh, the problem in in Oregon is that there's no I don't I don't have a community there yet either. Although I know several people in Portland. Uh, including the lovely Hermine Hayes Klein and uh, a bunch of other people that are in Oregon who were um, very receptive to the idea of me coming there. The problem is, is that midwives in Oregon can do breach deliveries at home, but they can't do them in a birth center. Oh. <laughs> which is, which when you, th- you know, everybody stop for a second and just think about that. You know, so Mrs. Jones can have her baby at breach on a farm 30 miles outside of town. But if Mrs. Jones wants to feel safer but have her baby at a birth center that's six blocks away from the Oregon Health Hospital, uh, that would be illegal. Now, who sits in a room in Salem, Oregon, and thinks this stuff up? I don't exactly know what the motivation was. I don't think there's any paper trail to ever find out what the motivation was. But wouldn't it be interesting to find out what they were thinking? And maybe they were thinking they can regulate birth centers, but they can't regulate people's homes. That's a you know, that's a First Amendment or a constitutional issue. They don't want to get involved with that. But quite frankly, it, it's insane because in order for me to reteach breach delivery, which is one of my, it's my hashtag, one of, one of the things that is, more impe- is necessary is to have volume in a specific location so that you can approach training programs and say, send me a resident or whatever. Now, training programs often will have huge barriers to that because of malpractice concerns or liability concerns or, or uh, supervision concerns, or if I'm not, I don't have an academic appointment, the residency program won't allow their residents to go someplace else. So there are so many regulatory and administrative barriers to doing the right thing that it becomes very, very frustrating to do that. Um, so right now when I leave, uh, that's a problem. And I will tell you that, that a, a perfect example of this was in November of this past year, uh, I had an opportunity to go to uh, Kenya with an organization called CureCervicalCancer.org to spend two weeks in uh, a town in the western part of Kenya called Kisi, and then uh, in Kiambu County, which is just outside of Nairobi, teaching local uh, practitioners how to do colposcopy which is visualization of the cervix with acetic acid. It's actually not colposcopy because they don't have the equipment, but it's the equivalent of that without the machinery, and, and cryotherapy. Because in a country that doesn't have access to pap smears and doesn't have access to biopsies or pathologists, you know, how do you treat for a human papillomavirus when it's rampant in that country and there are no screening methods? Well, you can treat this this visual inspection with acetic acid or what they call VIA and an immediate cryotherapy after informed consent. And you can, you can eliminate 85 to 90% of the people that might have gotten cervical cancer, you know, three to five to 10 years later. Sadly, while we were there, we picked up probably half a dozen to, to, a, to 10 uh, women who had invasive cancer of their cervix or vulva and it was, it's tragic because these women did not, need, will, will eventually die from their disease. They don't really have options there for, 
for uh, major pelvic surgery or radiation. So they will eventually die from their disease and it will probably be a rather horrible death. So they're doing really, really good work. And I had the opportunity to go as a favor to a friend of mine who runs this organization. Um, they had a last minute person who uh, got sick and had to drop out. And I said, sure. But of course, when I did that, I had some clients, including one set of twins who were due in and about that area. And some, most of the people understood some people didn't understand very well, and they took it very personally and got very angry with me. Um, they ended up going into labor and having the opportunity with me there. Um, but I, I threw on an extra level of anxiety for them, and I felt bad. You know. And the sad thing is, is it's, it's not your fault. It's the system. It's the way it's set up here. Well, yeah. In I mean, California. No, and nobody any, nobody you know? should expect that I'm going to be oh, a 24-hour yeah. a prisoner right, right. for every birth it's possible i mean and i try to make it very clear at the initial visit that you know i have to triage people if you're having a vaginal birth after cesarean with a head down baby and there's a woman with a breech baby in labor she has priority over you and my team will take care of you while i have to go to this other birth that's typically how it works so um yeah it's a real real dilemma but i i do have to say that this trip to to uh Nairobi, I do have it on my blog section of my website at uh, birthinginstincts.com. If you click on the blog, you can read. It's, uh, it's called uh, the long, uh, So Begins the Long Journey Home. And if you read it, it'll give you a synopsis of sort of what we did there. That it was really good work. It was really hard work. Uh, we, were, we were there from 8 uh, until 5.30 in the afternoon every day, seeing 200 to 400 patients a day. Um, there were about six or seven stations. Uh, there were, there was, for the first week, there were two physicians there, me and uh, Dr. Jennifer Lang. And then the second week, Dr. Lang went home and I was the only physician. We had three great medical students. And then we had one of the, uh, administrators from curecervicalcancer.org. It was, it was a great experience for me. Uh, somebody asked me, would I go back next year? And the, and I really had to think about it because it's disruptive to my life. Uh, it's, you feel like you're really doing something that's valuable. I would love to be able to do this. Again, it would all imply if I had some help, hint, hint, <laughs> that would be really helpful. Any um, thoughts? How long were you gone? Two weeks. Oh, wow. Which right. is a long time. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And you did ask me, like, what was my vision when I do become a midwife? And, and it definitely, you know, that scenario does happen for me um, as a birth doula. I've been a birth doula for 13 years. And I'm from Minnesota, just like you, and my whole family is back in Minnesota. And Sorry. every Christmas, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a good thing, right? No, no we all, but we're very polite. We're like Canadians. We, you know, we always apologize, eh? That's true. Yeah. Yes. Mm. How's it going? Uh, yeah, sure. I, you bet. <laughs> I think I've lost my accent. Hopefully, I have. You know, if you go home and spend two weeks back but at yeah, home, then I get that it comes. You know, back. It, it is securing backup doulas. You know, um, being a doula isn't you know as as high of a level as being the, the primary birth attendant as you are. But, you know, I have that continuity, continuity of care with my clients as well that, you know, we've had several birth meetings and, and I get to know them. They do become family and I want to be at their birth. And if I do have to use a backup doula, I feel, you know, it's, it's, it's like kind of a loss. It's kind of tough, but I do ensure that they will have somebody attend their birth. But for you, you don't have that privilege. That's why we do need to find some, you know, I, I kind of tongue in cheek said an awake obstetrician we need to have find an obstetrician that you know is is very much like you that is um that 
that is that thinks differently, you know, that um, is into natural birthing and home birthing, and you need a partner. You do. Well, I'll tell you, it's very liberating. <laughs> it's very liberating doing what I'm doing, and this may freak out some people, but I do not take insurance. I do not have to. I do not have hospital privileges. I don't have to deal with any of that rigmarole. I do not have malpractice insurance, which is hugely saving, and actually quite um, freeing of the fears and burdens. All right, every every client signs an arbitration agreement, which is drawn up by an attorney. Um, but we have such good relationships with our clients, and I feel so comfortable with knowing what's normal and knowing normal birth and being able to recognize when things don't go normal that I'm not really concerned about something happening to be uh, to be sued by. I think that the fear of a lawsuit is real, but I think it's blown way out of proportion and used too often as an excuse as to why we're not doing things. Our ethical obligation as physicians is to support reasonable choices for our clients. That is the basic tenet of medical ethics. And if we have uh, a system that says that you can't support VBAC because your medical malpractice won't let you, all right, that's a direct violation of your ethical obligation to support reasonable choices. And so a physician who is in that situation really has three choices. Two of them are ethical, and one of them is completely unethical. The ethical ones are, okay, I will support you, I will buck my hospital, I will take the consequences. The second one is, I can't support you, but it is a very reasonable choice. There are some physicians over at Hospital X, or there's a home birth midwife or a home birth doctor that's doing VBAC. Why don't you go have a consult with them and then come back and talk to me? Those are really ethical, but I would say that's a very small percentage of people that actually do that. The third one is the not ethical one, which is say that it's dangerous and that if you do it, you're going to be uh, foolish and you're going to put your baby at risk and you should have a repeat C-section. They know darn well because the evidence is overwhelming. Even in the ACOG evidence and the NIH, uh, with, you go to Jen Camel's website, VBAC Facts, and you find that... Um, there's so much data out there supporting this as a reasonable choice that to deny it and blame it on malpractice or blame it on anything, that's a cowardly thing. To, it's a cowardly thing to do. Right. You know, I was just wondering, you've done um, vaginal birth after cesarean, of course, routinely. Um, how many is the most cesareans has a woman had prior to you attending a vaginal birth with her? Well, um, in my home birthing world, uh, we did have one who had a VBAC after six C-sections. Wow. wow. But okay. she she ended up having to go to the hospital because at around four centimeters, um, she had a, we heard an audible D-cell. And so the first thing you worry about is the scar to hissing. But I did a vaginal right. examiner at that time, and the baby was actually presenting as a face presentation. Mm, okay. So she went to the hospital not because of that. But right. that was she was an Orthodox Jewish woman, and sh and she really wanted more kids. And she knew the risks of repeated, repeat, repeat, repeat C-sections and placenta accreta or placenta percreta. And she really wanted to give it a try. And it was partly for her, her own psyche and partly because of medical reasons. Um, but I've had four or five, six now VBACs after three C-sections. Right. I've had multiple VBACs after two C-sections. Right. You know, I, I have a, a, my, my VBAC success rate's about 93%. That's great. Which is great. And... Uh, so I think that that 
ultimately the idea is the ideal thing is to avoid the first C-section. Absolutely, and that's why so we true. that's where we have to put the attack down. We have to go after the unnecessary inductions, yeah. the the suggestions that your baby's too big or your hips are too small, or the unnecessary ultrasound. By the way, there was a really good article that I posted on the Dr. Stuart Fishbein Facebook page from Consumer Reports, the Reliable Consumer Reports. I don't know if you saw it, but it would listed it said. 10 things to reject when you're expecting. So it was called reject while you're expecting and what to expect while you're expecting. It was pretty pretty play on words. And one of them was a ultrasound after 24 weeks. Unless you have a strong medical indication for it, don't just let your doctor do one. Because a paper came out in the, recently in the Gray Journal that said if you have an ultrasound in the last month of your pregnancy for no real medical reason, your chance of cesarean section was 44% higher. And it's simply because they will find something. Oh, look at the baby's a little big. Oh, look at the fluid is a little bit borderline. Oh, this, oh, that. Which then starts this whole cascade of more tests and then anxiety and anxiety doesn't do well and then induction and then induction doesn't do well and you end up with a cesarean section. So avoiding those things. So again, go to Dr. Stuart Fishbein OBGYN Facebook page, like it and read the Consumer Reports article. That would be really great. You did share that with me and it is... You know, in my in my childbirth education classes, I do tell women, you know, we, we help them stay low risk, right? And then if their doctor or a midwife does order a test near the end or near term, I just say, make sure you pass the test. But like you said, they're looking for any little thing to, to do an intervention. And so it's it's a tough balance for me to to tell my couples, be open to you know, the testing, you know, like, like go in and, and I mean, you just need to be low risk, but even these low risk women, they're, they're now, scaring well, them we with, find, with anything. We always tell people to find a practitioner who isn't afraid of pregnancy and that's easy right. to say, but very hard to do. And that's why I would tell anybody who, 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 who they can to, as their primary practitioner should choose a midwife. Mm. Now, not all midwives are, are, you know, midwife friendly. Some of them we call medwives because right. they do intervene a lot. But it doesn't matter. It's down deep inside of them. They're still a midwife, and they're still less likely to have fear or anxiety or all that other stuff that OB many so many OBs bring to the um, the, the world right now. And and I don't blame the younger OBs. The OB, younger OBs are trained in that world of fear-based. And even if somebody goes into medical school and residency, that's eight years of being pounded upon by people with a negative point of, you know, with a with the negative point of view. You're being taught by maternal fetal medicine specialists. What do maternal fetal, fetal blah, 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 blah. what do maternal fetal medicine specialists see all day long? Pathology. Pathology. Like, yeah. Correct. So they, you know, normal women don't need to go to maternal fetal medicine specialists. Right. I would also caution women who don't who are perfectly healthy who want their twenty week structural ultrasound to get it from somebody who who is not fear based. Uh, it's so common. I hear this all the time. Women going in for a 20-week ultrasound and they'll find some little ditzel that those of us in the know means absolutely nothing, but they will tell them about it and they'll say, you know what, we need to rescan you in four weeks to see that it's gone. So for four weeks, you created a whole epigenetic uh, uh, nurture nature, nurture affecting uh, nature uh, a moment where a woman's anxious for four weeks only to find, obviously, that it's not gone, but now you paid a second fee for, your, for another ultrasound as well. So be very careful about that. It's hard to know who the really good maternal fetal medicine specialists are, uh, but if you have a good practitioner, they generally will use a like-minded specialist as well. 
So, Dr. Stu, what else have you been up to in the last eight months? I'm glad you asked me that question. <laughs> uh, well, in uh, January, I believe it was, I went to, I was blessed to go to Sedona, Arizona. <laughs> Another funny story, by the way, they, had, they bought me a plane ticket to go to Sedona, and I was going to give talks uh, at the Indie Birth Conference on breech delivery and twin delivery. And, of course, uh, I missed my flight because I was out of birth. Oh. So instead of doing that, what I did was I got in my car at 10 o'clock at night and I drove all night long from L.A. to Sedona. It's about a seven-hour drive. And one of my favorite places on the planet is Sedona, Arizona. And I, I got to my hotel at about 7 in the morning. I took a nap for two hours. And then I went and presented uh, on Breach. And the next day I presented on Twins. And, and then I left early because I had other people that were potentially threatening and, and do. So Sedona was doable because... It was drivable, but going to uh, potentially, I, I have an op option possibly to go to Anchorage in, um, or actually Wasilla, not Anchorage, Wasilla, Alaska, home of Sarah Palin, famously, <laughs> but there's a beautiful birth center there, and some good friends of mine run the, run the center, and they're having a conference, but I don't know that I can go now, because that was going to be, I think, end of August or end of September, and I think I told you off the record, we, I have, in August and September right now, I have seven sets of twins. So that's, the word is out that people who want incredible. an option are looking at this as an option. Again, that's why I'm saying if I could find somebody else, boy, would they get some good training uh, if they were willing to do that sort of work. But that was a great conference. Um, I learned a lot there. I learned about moxibustion. I got to oh, do. Great. I got to have somebody moxibust my lower back, which was is that a word? Moxibust. Um, uh, it's a new verb, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a new verb. Uh, they they um, took care of my lower back for me, and I could That's feel great. the heat, and it felt good for about five minutes, and then of course my pain was right back again. Um, but I am, uh, but I am uh, a driving fiend. I, I put on a couple hundred miles often every day. Uh, there are days where I don't, but certainly I so driving to Sedona and for me is fine. I, I I have a lot of solace in my car. It's a very peaceful place for me. Um, then also I. Um, Spoke to the residents. Uh, I got a chance to speak to uh, OB residents and the faculty at the lunch conference at Good Samaritan Hospital here in downtown Los Angeles. And I spoke again on breach delivery. And uh, I felt I was fairly well received. However, I was approached afterwards by some of the people of the nursing staff. And they told me a couple of distressing things. They said that although the faculty seemed very interested, there's absolutely no way that they're going to be bringing breach delivery to their hospital. Uh, and they also told me that, the, that something really distressing about the residents there, and I think that this is probably more true than not true, is that the intellectual curiosity in many of these people has been beaten out of them. And she says the residents spend their day with their nose in the computer, uh, doing whatever they do in the computer. And uh, I don't think it's social media. I think it's you know reading and doing the things that they're supposed to be doing, although I'm sure there's some social media. They stay as far away from labor and delivery as possible. Oh, wow. When there's a birth, they come to the birth room, they catch the baby, they write the orders, and they get out of the room as fast as possible, and then they go hide. All right? So wow. how are we going to... And this is the next generation of OBs. Now, again, this is one anecdotal story. Uh, people who listen to me know one of my mottos is that the plural of anecdote is not data. So you don't take this as, a, as what's going on in all residency programs. But certainly this was sort of depressing to me to hear that, that, you know, maybe they are doing nothing, but they're not doing nothing at a time where they're supposed to be learning stuff. And ultimately, this is even a hospital that has midwives in labor and delivery, and these are the people that should be teaching these people uh, normal birthing. 
I personally think it should be mandatory for all OB residents to spend at least a month, if not two months, being a labor and delivery nurse or, or attending home birthing. I don't think that that will pass the muster of the, of the residency rules, but, but at least being a labor and delivery nurse and having to watch a woman from start to finish, and not just a woman who's getting induced, but a woman who actually comes to the hospital in labor. I, I imagine there's still a few of those. What's your clientele like, by the way? I mean, you do home birthing dueling and you yes. do hospital birthing dueling. Tell us a little bit about the difference. The difference is night and day, obviously. You know, um, but the couples that hire me for hospital birthing, they want, most of the time, they want a natural birth. I am hired sometimes for women that, that know that they would like an epidural, but they also do know statistics that they'd like to get to six centimeters or active labor prior. And so they, they're a little bit afraid of of the labor up to that point. Um, but um, my favorite, of course, is supporting out-of-hospital birth for, you know, very, for many reasons. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me it would be very frustrating sometimes to see things being done that you don't know, that you don't, that you know don't need to be done. It is. And, then, and, you, and again, because of your position of being a non-medical person in a hospital setting, it's very, you have to be very respectful right. of the fact of how much can you actually intervene. Are you going to cause more trouble than not by throwing doubt into the woman's mind when her doctor wants to do something or the nurses want to do something. It's got to be very difficult. It's one of those yes. things that I do not miss right. in the least being it, a, an out-of-hospital yeah. birthing person. It definitely can be very difficult. And it's, like I always say, it's a fine balance between, you know, keeping the mother in her maternal brain or primitive brain. And, and you even said it's, it's like impossible for, you know, to bring home birth into a hospital. And so many of my clients that want a birth in a hospital, that's what they want. And we will say you know, we will help you get your home birth in the hospital, but it's, it's impossible. You know, um, there's so many um, examples, you know, one of which is just like the garbage man will come into the birth and laboring room and change the garbage in the middle of a woman in labor. And all of a sudden there's a stranger there, you know, and women birthing in hospitals are going to have strangers in and out of their room all the time, you know, doing a home birth or, or hiring your birth team. And that's one thing that I love about, you know, Kalista's birth that I just had for almost four weeks ago, she's three and a half weeks old in my home and looking around at my birth team. I hand selected who was going to be at my birth. Nobody else was going to come in that I didn't want there, you know, and my birth team was phenomenal. My husband was phenomenal. I had my daughter with me and you can't have that in the hospital setting, you know, and um, another very vivid um, memory of mine of supporting a couple in labor in the hospital setting, the mom was pushing. She was doing glorious. She was doing amazing, but there was a nursing shift change that was happening to her right. I'm on her left and I'm helping her and I'm riveted on, you know, what's happening. But the mother finally looked over at this nursing shift change, which they're like, oh, this is when she came in, she was so many centimeters and she's had this and she's had this, blah, blah, blah. The mother actually looked and said, excuse me, um, can, can you do that out in the hall? This is kind of important here. And it just like totally threw me right into the present moment. And I was like, oh my gosh, like as a doula, I should have been, you know, perhaps seeing that in the... Did the nurses in, even, did the nurses, they, uh, did they, were they polite about it and say, oh, I'm so sorry? Or I, I or did they, just, they roll their eyes and go, <laughs> I mean, what did they do? Because, yeah. because, I mean, again, these are good people who you get indoctrinated in a way of doing things and you forget why you're there. Right. And I think, you know, I tell what a lot of... What did they do? What did the nurses you do? You know, I, from that scenario, they were like, oh gosh, of course, you know, and then they exited okay, and, and that was really great. But I do, you know, I give uh, labor and delivery nurses a lot of benefit, benefit of the doubt a lot, the ones that aren't jaded, because they do go into it, I think, because they want to empower and help women through labor and birth. But when they get there, I think that they're just charting and, and it becomes 
a, me a mechanical extraction of the baby and, and you know, uh, liability and all this type of stuff. And I love my role as the doula being that comfort for the mother, that, that nurturing aspect, the mothering, the mother attending to her needs, helping her navigate, you know, through the system. And um, it's super rewarding. I love it, you know, but it's hard and it's definitely hard in the hospital setting. Yeah. Well, that's great. And another rewarding thing that I did while uh, during this uh, eight month period of time was I went to a couple of screenings, um, some virtual, some real, on uh, two documentaries produced by my, well, one produced by my friend Elliot Berlin called The Heads Up, The Disappearing Out of Breach Delivery. And the other uh, was a documentary, oh God, I'm going to get killed now for not thinking of the woman's name who, who did the Why Not Home documentary. But this is a wonderful documentary that's starting to make the rounds now, and I would strongly suggest it. I sat on a panel with a bunch of people afterwards, but... Um, the documentary is called Why Not Home, and it looks at uh, five, I think, uh, health workers at, from Petaluma Hospital in Petaluma, California. I think uh, two were doctors, one was a NICU nurse, one was a midwife, one was a regular labor nurse. All five of them worked in the labor and delivery unit at Petaluma Hospital. All five of them chose to have their baby outside of the hospital. And it was very respectful of the hospital setting. A couple of them had to be transferred in. I think one got a cesarean. Um, but it's a, it was interviewing these people as to why they work in labor and delivery, what's wrong with the system there, what's right with the system there, and why they chose to have their babies at home. And then we had a panel discussion afterwards, and it was great. It was at a movie theater. I got to eat popcorn, which, <laughs> you know, for me, going to a movie without popcorn, I think I was the only person in the whole, whole screening that bought a bag of popcorn, but, you know what, that's me. Of course, I'm often the only guy... I'm the only Y chromosome in the room too. Oh Although gosh. this one, there were some dad, there were a lot of dads there, at this sort of thing. Uh, I I am used to being surrounded by uh, Y chromosomes. It's really nice to have my pal John <laughs> sitting next to us uh, today. Sans yep. is ga Sans is gallbladder, but uh, and uh, Bella is a girl. Yes. Uh oh. So see, we've trumped. Well, how does she feel like a girl today, or how are you sure? Does she lift her leg, or does she not lift her leg? <laughs> I want to oh know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, acquiring wines, I want to know. Bella, but by the way, Bella is a very interesting dog. It's the only dog I've ever heard of in my entire life that's allergic to grass. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we talked about this in one of our podcasts, uh, the epigenetics of Bella, because somehow she got exposed to something that caused oh her to gosh. be allergic. Because how many dogs, uh, what kind of dog can survive being allergic to grass? It's oh a gosh. very unusual thing. So I would strongly recommend that people uh, check out the Heads Up Reach documentary and the Why Not Home Doctor Any. A friend of mine, Karen Ecker, uh, she's a filmmaker from Australia. She has a new uh, documentary coming out called One Birth at a Time. And it, it, it's very short. I think it's 12, 14 minutes long. Uh, also a very good watch. You can find that uh, uh, through just, just Googling One Birth at a Time or Karen Ecker, E-C-K-E-R. Well, you know, we're almost out of time today. Uh, the last thing I guess I'd like to say is that um, it's been... Uh, this has been missed. My podcast for me has been something that I found very, see, even Callista thinks so, very <laughs> cathartic for me because, you know, I used to blog a lot and then I stopped blogging because I had a podcast and I used to podcast a lot. And, and then, you know, the podcast disappeared for a while because we got busy, but I really didn't miss it because my life was happy. And when you're happy, you really don't need to like bloviate or, or vent whatever else. But you know what? I missed it because there's so much going on every day that I could vent about. And this is a good uh, thing for me. So if you listeners have things you want to vent about or want me to comment on, then write me at askdrstu at gmail.com. Again, I read every email. 
and I will go ahead and I will respond to your email, and some of them will be topics for future podcasts. Uh, so on behalf of Dr. Jennifer Angel and myself, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, and John, our producer, and Bella, our dog, and Callista, our official uh, baby for the day, uh, we want to thank you for listening to Dr. Stu's podcast. Pick it up on iTunes. Uh, have a great evening. Bye, everybody. Bye.